Usually at the end of the month, I just remind folks how the center operates. Many of you have been around for a while and know this. It's truly the most interesting and challenging practice we do here. And your particular way of relating to Kamgarna can be just one way to kind of explore this practice we call dana, which is the word for generosity. And to just imagine all the different relationships we have in the world with our loved ones, with our communities, with our jobs, with really everything, and to reimagine those relationships as a circle of giving and receiving. Because otherwise, by default, you know, with our cultural conditioning, we're going to have a strategic business-like relationship. I mean, whether you want to call that capitalism or whatever you want to call it, and I'm, and I'm not trying to have a political discussion or economic discussion, but that's a very, it, it uh, allows for a very particular kind of mind when in our loved or loving relationships with others, it's a business relationship. You love me, I'll love you. You stop loving me, I stop loving you. You're generous to me, I'll be generous. You get me a birthday gift, I'll get you a birthday gift. You know, you pick up, you respond to my texts, I'll respond to your texts. You don't respond to my texts. And it's a lot of our relationships in the world are this way. They're strategic, business-like relationships. And that may be okay. That may be all we can have. I don't know. But it's nice, at least in places where we feel some safety, to explore a different kind of relationship where we're giving because it feels good to give. So when we're giving, it's like the giving itself is the reason we're giving. It feels good to give. And what that person does with what we've given, that's really their responsibility. Because we gave, it felt good, it felt healing to give, and that's great. And if we get something back from the person, that will be a free gift that we practice then receiving as a free gift and how to make that cause for happiness, that this is coming my way. What can I do with this? How can I receive this in a way that's healing, that's enlivening, that's clarifying for me? So in every relationship, there's going to be a movement of giving and receiving, and we're turning it into this, having the spirit, the quality of generosity, non-stinginess, non-business, right? So it has more the quality of participating in these interdependent circles, which is much more in alignment with the way it is. I mean, we can have this each time you take a breath in, that receiving, right? Or you drink a glass of water, or you eat some food. Each time you pick something up, each time you exhale, right? Everything can be seen in the circle of giving and receiving. And so at Common Ground, we organize the center in this light so we don't charge for anything. We haven't since we began 25 years ago. In order for us as a community to practice this, so all the teachers, the staff, you know, the normal operation, we practice, all the volunteers, we practice offering this space, these teachings, the programs here as a free gift. And so it's like a, it's a really beautiful practice just to put it out there. All the talks get put up online. Everything is given away as a free gift. And that's a powerful practice, not to be stingy, 
Now, to be strategic about that. And then when we contribute back to the center by volunteering or wishing well for the community or giving money, then that is the whole idea is for that to be a free gift. Because if it feels like you're giving because you received, you didn't really receive it as a free gift. So you have to take it as a free gift, no strings attached. That's a practice. It's, so some people, like when they start coming, they don't give for the first however you know, amount of time, months maybe. Because it's really good to practice receiving it as a free gift. You don't have to give. So that when you do decide to give, it's because you want to support the teacher or the center, want to help this place continue. And it's a real free gift because you don't have to give. And so that way you give in a way that makes you happy instead of in a way that removes the guilt or where you think you're doing it about the same as everybody else. You know? So we imagine, like, well, I wonder what other people give. I'll try to give that much. Because there's no right and wrong way. We all have different circumstances in our lives, other obligations, some people with a lot of money, some people with very little money, excess money to offer to places like Common Ground. And we want everybody to feel completely welcomed at this place regardless of your particular situation in life. Because everybody here can fully participate in the circle of giving and receiving regardless of your particular circumstance in your life. It's just for you to figure that out. And the way we figure it out is we receive and give in a way that makes us happy. So if we don't have a happy relationship in any of your particular relationships, like your relationship to Calm Ground, then experiment. Try something else. Change your attitude. Change how you're giving how you're receiving, so that it starts to feel like a positive force, an enlivening force in your life. You know, it's so interesting to be up front and look around the room and see just, you know, all the people who've been around for a while and all the different ways people have found to contribute. Even if it's just being very appreciative, that's a beautiful way to contribute, being really grateful for what you've gained, being part of the community from these teachings. So if you have questions about how that all works, you can, of course, check in with me. And Scott is our program host today somewhere in the room. And Haya will be in the office. Oh, there's Scott there. And Haya's over here next to the door. And she'll be in the office at the end of the program if you have any questions about how we operate. And Gail Iverson, a longtime teacher here and former board chair, is also our bookkeeper. And she works at the center. She's a quarter-time staff person doing our bookkeeping on Tuesdays, so she can help you with any of the technical things. We do have more information on the website, and there's a handout out next to the donation bowls where you can get more information, too. So I've been, uh, and I'll probably end with this talk, been given giving a series of talks about, I guess the general topic would be humility and uh, embracing of uncertainty and uh, a willing, willingness to drop, to see any kind of conceit. And it's interesting, in the Buddhist tradition, even thinking that I'm the same as somebody else is considered a conceit. So it's basically any way we conceive of ourselves and then hold to that conception, that's a conceit. And the Buddha would suggest it's an unnecessary weight in our heart. We don't need to have a fixed 
sense of ourself. And as I talked last week, if you weren't here, you can listen to the talk. All our talks are online for you to listen to after the fact. But last week I talked about how identities, all the different identities that we have, they're very useful concepts, but not something to fix on, not something to hold tight to, but identities are something to use strategically in moments to help us illuminate what otherwise wouldn't be seen, for example, in an interaction or even within our own mind as we're sort of navigating our life. When I bring up an identity, you know, I'm this, then I can see more how culture has conditioned this moment. I can see more clearly. So we use concepts, identities, we use these relative truths, maybe we could call them, to help us see. But we don't want to use them as a kind of ground for the ego. I'm this, in some kind of, as if that, in some complete way or permanent way, defines what or who I am. It's one piece, and, and its truth exists in a moment. You know, whether we're talking about a racial identity or a gender identity, a sex identity, a class identity, it can help us understand what's moving in the moment or not moving in the moment. But we don't want to use it for more than what it, to imagine it being more than what it is. So we pick it up, clarifies, illuminates what we're not seeing, but then we don't have to lug it around with us at every moment but it's there to use when it needs to be used. So, you know, when we reflect on living with humility or this don't know mind, it's really a step, it's really an an embracing step towards the truth of uncertainty. Who knows? Who knows? And we can tap into that in any moment, like this moment too. Right, like it's possible for each of us right now, you know, exploring how to be in this moment and to realize a way of being in this moment where I don't need to know anything, like who I am, what this is. I don't even need to have an opinion of whether the talk is useful or not for me right now. But it's also okay to pick up an identity or a conclusion or a view. But what helps us really use view, opinions, identities, is knowing that we can put them down, knowing what it's like not to be attached or not to have a fixed view. So the problem with views, identities, concepts, conceptions, is the mind doesn't know how to put them down. Doesn't know, like uh, one of my teachers Joseph Goldstein, who was here a couple of weeks ago giving a talk for our, our 25th anniversary. He, uh, way back at least, he had read a book about the origins of the concept zero. And it was sort of one of those popularized, uh, mathematics popularized. Um, somebody wrote it maybe 15, 20 years ago, the book. And it might have zero in the title. I forget what it's, the title of the book is or who the author is. But it really, Joseph really loved the book, I remember and talked a lot about the idea of zero. 
because it, it corresponds, like when it might have been in um, what is now Iraq, where that idea in Persian culture or in um, Arabic culture, uh, where that idea, that mathematical idea came up. But anyway, it relates a lot to the, the Buddhist idea too of a mind that's unfixed. Because one of the habits we have, and it's a, again, it's a useful habit to use, is to be able to locate ourselves in our, in our relative worlds, our maps that we use socially, culturally. You know, we have all kinds of different maps that we use. And to be able to locate ourselves in a, that kind of consensual reality is useful. Oh, here's how I fit in here. You know, you go home to your family, your siblings, parents, kids, nephews and nieces, etc., to be able to locate ourselves, right? That's useful. We have a particular location, cultural location in that community, a different one over here. But to let all that drop away, right? And so these are the so-called mystical experiences that people have bumped into throughout history where they step outside of those cultural frames, those cognitive frames, and they have a so-called mystical experience of not having a location. And they might, depending on their, when they start to talk about it within their cultural frames, everyone talks about it differently depending on what frame they talk about their mystical experience. But it's all about this experience of zero, of not being located, not the mind not being fixed. And this experience isn't far away. All it takes is the mind, this activity of mind that is constantly or almost constantly locating itself, establishing itself, and then seeing from that fixed point of view, understanding, defining my moment, my experience from that fixed point of view, all it takes is for that to cease. And because it's an ongoing activity, it's both ceasing and re-arising moment to moment. So it's already ceasing all the time. Whatever fixed view you have, you might like have a strongly fixed view, I'm a male, or I'm a female, or I'm gender non-conforming, or I'm whatever conception you might have. But whatever the conception one has around gender, that's being renewed in each moment. It doesn't like you, you did it once when you were, 14, and then it's there forever, unchanging in your mind or in your heart. No. Our reality, in a fixed way, is being reconstructed moment by moment by moment, which also means it's falling apart moment by moment by moment. When we understand the fluid, the Buddha makes this as important of a point in his teachings as anything. You know, generally we call it, we refer to it as impermanence the changing nature, the uncertain nature, the ephemeral nature, or the process nature that nothing whatsoever is fixed. It just has the appearance of being fixed because we're not paying close attention. When we pay close attention, have more present moment awareness, we see the fluidity, the groundlessness. We see that we're living in a constructed reality. And then we get curious about allowing, uh, basically 
getting interested in the moment between constructions. Right? If, if it's a fluid thing and we have meaning moment by moment, but the meaning is a fluid thing, my conception, that means it's being born and dying. And doesn't that make sense? Like in the wider scheme when we observe nature, we see birth and death all the time, night and day, summer and winter. I mean, everything is coming and going. So it kind of makes sense that internally our subjective experience, the conceptions that we kind of organize our lives around, that they're also being born and dying all the time too. But we're only seeing the, in a sense, we're only catching because of our habits of superficiality and distractedness, we're only catching the construction when it's fully formed, like who I am, what opinion I have, how I define things, how I locate myself, what identities I have for myself. We just see it when it's fully formed, and we've gotten into a deep habit to only notice the fully formed conceptions and not to notice the moments of zero, the deconstruction. And the people who do notice them, we either think they're weird, or if they're articulate enough, we call them a saint. (laughs) And we build an institutional religion around them, right? And then we have problems because it gets institutionalized, right? It's not the problem that somebody understood something that we could understand but haven't had the wherewithal to see clearly. So this is why we're really emphasizing the continuity of present moment awareness. We don't want to just be with our habit of seeing the conceptions of our thinking mind fully formed and we don't see this. It's like happening under the radar of our conscious mind, like the dismissing of the other half of the equation. There's no fully formed idea without fully formed ideas falling apart and disappearing. Because how does the next fully formed idea show up if the previous one hasn't completely, absolutely disappeared? But we don't notice that. Why is it that we don't notice that? Like, I'll give you another example. Anybody been really angry in the last 24 hours? Right? Or really greedy in the last 24 hours? Or really upset in some way? Right. But did you notice the moment, upset, 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 and then it's like it's gone? How many of us actually notice when we've had a strong experience, whatever it is, could be like universal love, but now it's gone? But did we notice the moment it was there and then it wasn't there? Like, were you clear enough? Did it fade slowly away or was it there fully formed and then disappear? Because if we don't know the answer to that, that means we weren't aware. How did it go from being there to not being there? Or the other kind of obvious question is, before you got upset, you were nor- you know the personality was sort of okay, it was peaceful or whatever. It was okay, it was okay, it was balanced, it was peaceful, it was happy, 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 and then upset. So did we see the birth of the upset? how the mind went from that fully formed experience of being okay or being happy to the fully formed experience of being upset. Did we see clearly how one ended 
and the other burst into existence? No. But this is happening all the time. It's like those of you who've been able to be there for the birth of a child, you know, people talk about it just like we talk about when we're there at the time of somebody's death. It's kind of a life, can be a life-changing experience, just that powerful change. And this is not so different than when we really catch some conception that the mind is identified with ceasing or some conception that hasn't yet come into being, not there, not there, and then there. And when awareness is really tracking the present moment clearly enough and really sees the ending or the beginning of some conception, self-conception, it's life-changing. I remember, I still like in a riveted, riveting way, I remember being on a long retreat. It was one of the three-month retreats at IMS I did in the 90s. And, and I was doing some walking meditation. It was early in the morning. And I was observing this feeling of doubt there, which was kind of a common uh, emotional flavor in my mind, has been, still is to some degree, right? And uh, actually it was, it was not there. And then I was feeling, it was a beautiful morning, I remember. And uh, I was just feeling a lot of calm, a lot of peace, present moment awareness. And then I saw that very familiar pattern of doubt just emerge seemingly out of nowhere. And because the awareness was there, was there, was there, was there, it really saw that moment where you know, the mind was peaceful, there was a sense of wholeness, sense of okayness, and then the doubt came in. And because it was really present when the doubt came in, clearly saw that I wasn't the doubt. I didn't do the doubt. I wasn't asking for the doubt or selecting the doubt. It just showed up as a natural phenomena, right? It was very impersonal. And the mind saw that, and it was there. And so then the relationship to the doubt as it persisted was such, it was different because that's not me. That was just some natural arising, doubt, doubt. And because there wasn't as much or any identification, the doubt disappeared. And now my relationship with doubt, that emotional pattern, has forever shifted because of that clarity and those, you know, whatever it was, five seconds of practice, ten seconds of practice. Seeing doubt arising on the scene, seeing doubt ceasing. Because it's so clear to wisdom in the mind that that's not personal. That that's something that comes and goes. That any attachment to that pattern, emotional pattern of doubt, makes an unnecessary tightness or weight. just doesn't help. Doesn't, and it isn't needed. We don't need to imagine that that emotional pattern, that identity... I'm the one who has a lot of doubt, is more than what it is. And some identities, like I said, can be very useful. And some identities, there's no reason to even inhabit them momentarily, right? Because they don't bring clarity. They sort of 
construct a world that limits our capacity to be skillful. Like if I'm in that bubble of thinking I'm the one with a lot of doubt or I'm the one who's never been good enough, right? That limits how I might respond to the moment skillfully. It doesn't help. So we can imagine, you know, moving through our lives in this way where we know that we don't know. And even like even the kind of choices that we have to make as a human being, and there are a lot of choices, and there are, these choices are really important. So I'm not diminishing the importance of the kind of choices we have to make as a parent, as a friend, as a lover, as a citizen. But we can be really curious, like, oh, it will be interesting to see how this choice is made. I really care. I really don't want to add suffering for myself, for others. I want to be skillful. And I know that I don't know. And I have various frames, various opinions, various perspectives I can try on. When I see the situation from this point of view, I want to say no. When I see it from this other point of view, I want to say yes. When I see it from this point of view, I know that I don't know. So we have these different hats we can wear. But we don't presume the sort of satisfied arrogance or this kind of arrogant certainty. We don't presume we know or that there's only one way even. How would we know? It can be more that whatever choice is made by what I call me, (laughs) whatever choice I make to get married or not get married, to leave my job or stay in the job, to do this thing or to not do this thing, my commitment is to be skillful, to be laying down the causes for happiness and ease in my heart and in the world, not laying down the causes for disease and hate and harm. So that's more of a what we'd call a process orientation, where we know that we don't know but we're really, we can still be really committed to the process. So even if we do sort of a so-called mistake and make a choice that seems like it was the wrong thing to do, the process would remain the same, like being intimate with whatever choice is next, like maybe even the choice to make amends or the choice to backtrack. But in any case, it's a new choice. And to be intimate and not to pretend we're certain, and to be curious about what choice will be made. And we're really leading with this value of non-harming, this deep commitment to live with the value of non-harming. And that's really where awareness practice or mindful awareness practice, it comes out of that deep commitment. Because in a way, it's the central value Right? In a way, all the other wholesome values that we live with, it comes out of this deep value not to contribute to our own harm or the harming of others. And that's a value we can find because we see, when we see suffering, our own and others, it's like quite natural not to want to contribute to more harm. 
for ourselves or others. So what can I do? Well, I can pay attention. I can drop my imagined certainty, my arrogant certainty, and I can actually be more open because I care, because I don't want to contribute to suffering. I can be open. I can keep touching into this place of zero so when I'm present, I'm more fresh, not so tied. I can use identities to illuminate, skillfully illuminate the moment, but I'm, I'm not, my mind isn't rigid with its fixations, with its attachments to this identity or this point of view or this opinion. So that's really this place of non-conceit or humility or what we call being open, being mindfully aware. It really, you know, in the deeper sense, being present, being mindfully aware, it's really pointing to a radical shift in view from a fixed view to operating in any moment without a fixed view. It's really, that's the wisdom piece of mindful awareness. It's not as simple to sort of be aware in that more casual sense of the word aware because uh, we're conscious all the time. But we don't realize how our perception of you know conscious perception, how it's really being shaped by fixed view or shaped by our identity or our location. So to really be present requires a shift of view from being fixed to knowing that views are views, knowing that identities are identities. So we're not confused. We're using them strategically to see what's moving here, what's unfolding here. So I hope that's helpful, not too confusing. And uh, we have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear your own comments from your practice that you'd like to share with the group. Any questions you might have? Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. And if you'd like, you can say your name. And just to remind folks, we do record on Sunday mornings and we put the talks up on the website. So you might want to keep that in mind if you'd like to share. So anybody want to start us off? What thoughts do you have? Oh, yeah, Zinzalei. I'm I'm Zinzalei. So my question is, like, if you have core beliefs that are driven from childhood experiences or different types of trauma, and it's clear that those core beliefs don't necessarily benefit you, but your body mind keeps reacting to them, to them, and then you can see them, but they're still there. So, so any kinds of core beliefs basically is just a form of attachment and conceit. Yeah, but totally understandable, yeah. right? Because sometimes it can't be other than the way it is. And to the degree a person starts to understand that those core beliefs are there, maybe through a lot of therapu- uh, th- therapy and other healing things that have happened in their lives and confidence to look, and they begin to get the shape of some of those core beliefs, then they might notice that in other environments, those core beliefs have less power over the mind. And so 
when it's possible, and it may not always be possible, or it may not even often be possible, but when it is possible to be in those spaces where those core beliefs have less power, then the person can get more of a sense of what the mind is like when it's less governed by those core beliefs. And it can kind of build the confidence in that way of being. Because even core beliefs that are ultimately not helpful or maybe even toxic, but if that's what we've been living with, there's a kind of dependence on them that is not easy to go beyond. It's a, it's a profound healing process to step outside of belief systems that we've lived with. This is why racial healing, class healing, you know, patriarchy and the sort of dropping of patriarchy is a sticky, sticky problem for all of us. Because these things, these identities that have been imprinted deep and all of our own senses of safety are somehow tied in with our identities, whether we're the more the victim collection of identities or the perpetrator, the privileged person, end of the spectrum. There's a lot of dependence. Spiritual work is not easy work. This kind of deeper healing is not easy work. But it's easier to do the work than to avoid doing the work. Just because we don't, it seems easy to not do the work, but it's because we're not aware of the price we pay not doing the work. We're all imprisoned by our fixed beliefs, whatever they might be. But we don't, that doesn't mean we necessarily feel the weight of that imprisonment. And that's kind of the job of communities like Common Ground to help us have enough safety to acknowledge that we don't want to live inside of these fixed ideas anymore. Thanks, Enzalei, for bringing that up. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, please, Shannon. Thank you so much. Very helpful thought um, talk today. Um, I have a question about power, <laughs> which is something I'm always interested in in terms of social relationships. And so... Um, I think it's also really healing for me too, as a black woman and a black, um, you know, and this has been a historically sort of white space and it's shifting, um, bit by bit. Um, and I wonder if you can talk, um, is it, it is healing for me to hear also more language around, um, identity and sort of, because I, you know, um, my experience and a lot of experience of practitioners of color is that, you know, sort of this idea of identity, um, as it's been interpreted by teachers in the West is sort of like who are predominantly white, um, is, you know, Oh, well, any, um, identification (laughs) with identity, um, is bad, right. Is not the Dharma is not the way of the Dharma. Um, and then, so if I'm, from a historically marginalized community, historically marginalized identity, then, you know, um, talking about those aspects of my identity is not in the way of the Dharma. Right. And that just reinscribes the power dynamics. Um, and so (laughs) I know this is a huge question, but I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about the, the, um, issue of power, you know, in relationship to 
putting down those identities in a skillful way and picking them up and you know what that might look like how that works etc yeah well i mean th- th- yeah you're, there are a lot of ways to kind of pick up that question but it's but the one important point is that we i think we really need like if we all took the time to listen to each other about how we understand our own awakening and becoming a more light and more responsive human being, it would be the stories could be interpreted as moving from one fixed identity, finding another fixed identity, using that, and from the perspective of this new fixed identity, seeing that I don't need to cling to this fixed identity. And then eventually realizing that this new identity is also cumbersome, (laughs) right? And having a lighter, more nimble fixed identity and then releasing that. And even so even within how you know, anybody who's had a lot of oppression, marginalization, or just difficult circumstances in their lives, being born in a war zone or whatever it might be, poverty, then the more that we're experiencing that kind of exposure to pain, emotional, physical, existential pain. It's like the, that animal, those animal instincts that have been triggered are going to be really pronounced. And so the conception we're going to have is that like, you know, fight flight conception. You know, I got to strike out, I've got to hide. And so we're going to need a relatively clear and intense identity to be able to. And so it's interesting, like, when marginalized people or stressed out people or people with a lot of suffering, like what spiritual tools are actually useful for them are different than the spiritual tools that would be useful for people that have a lot of privilege and comfort. And one of the interesting things about Buddhist cosmology, I don't know if people know this, but in the tradition, um, certainly after the time of the Buddha, but maybe even before the time of the Buddha, and some of it was sort of borrowed from the pre-existing culture before the time of the Buddha. But there are all these different realms of existence. And, uh, you know, so there are more hellish realms, and there are animal realms, and there are human realms, and there are all these angelic realms, and even realms with people don't have bodies of light, even more, more subtle realms of just pure love, let's call it, right? And practice looks different in all of these realms. And in some of these realms, it's just not possible. There's an example uh, when Buddha was in a hell realm, the Buddha-to-be, right? So the Buddha, part of these stories are the Buddha going through all these realms. I mean, just think of these as mythological stories. That's the best way, like how they can point to things that are true about our minds now. But so he was in a hell realm, you know, I think it was one of the hot hell realms. There were cold hell realms and sharp hell realms and <laughs> very descriptive <laughs> people, you know, people's minds, how they can go wild with these things. <laughs> and uh, he was like, you know, you can imagine pulling a cart that was totally heavy with other people who were enslaved in this hell realm and uh, terrible guards whipping people to get them to move. And the person next to him falls down, and so he's getting beaten. And the Buddha-to-be helps him. But that 
identity of being the one who helps doesn't fit in the hell realm, right? So the Buddha immediately left that hell realm, right? Because in that hell realm, like this is like in terms of our own mind, when we have the identity of fear, like I can't help because I'll be beaten, then we're stuck in that hell realm. But as soon as, even if we're in an oppressed state, as soon as our mind opens to a bigger picture, right, then we're no longer in that previous oppressed state. So the idea is to understand identities, and this is what is so empowering, like now to go to your point about power. When we're, like there are people who have a lot of power in a relative sense, but they might be very identified with their position, their location. And in that sense, they're very vulnerable. So the way they defend their power will express that vulnerability. right? So on a relative sense, they might be causing a lot of suffering, but they're really vulnerable and they're really suffering. But wherever we are on the spectrum of having a relatively privileged existence, a lot of comfort, a relatively oppressed existence, a lot of discomfort, we want, it's not necessarily easy, but it helps to understand that identity is always in play and to be used strategically. So it's always the question, what view, what identity would be useful right now? As opposed to, I only have the option of using the identity I've been handed through my culture, through my parents and the wider culture. Because that's a pretty limited set of cards that we would have if all we have are the identities that have been handed. So part of spiritual practice is stabilizing awareness to realize that identity is a relative thing. And that gives us a lot of options. And there's a lot of power. And I bet you've had this experience, Shannon, where you're in a situation and you feel, we feel ourselves being channeled into a particular dynamic with the other person based on the predominant identity, that person's predominant identity. And then we realize... I don't have to be that person in this moment. And it's like an Aikido move, you know, where we have a different identity and the whole dynamic shifts because we didn't have to be that identity that would have been very easy for us to be in that moment. Thanks so much. That's such a great comment. Maybe you'd like to do a workshop on that, Shannon. (laughs) That'd be great. So we need to leave it here. We'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just take a moment to take one or two breaths together. Thanks, everyone, for coming and doing this really essential work together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.